Knowing how to speak and understand a new language can be an invaluable tool when traveling, meeting new friends, or just even to master a new skill. But it's not always simple when you're bogged down by textbooks and structure classes. That's why so many people trust Rosetta Stone. Rosetta Stone is the most trusted language learning program, available on desktop or as an app. It truly immerses you in the language you want to learn, like Spanish, French, Italian, Chinese, and more. You won't just be studying English translations. The Rosetta Stone intuitive process helps you pick up a language naturally, first with words, then phrases, then sentences. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com rs10. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com rs10 today. Given how quickly AI is advancing, given how quickly disruptive technologies are advancing, given how much damage it's doing to our civil society, what the, the, the behavioral impact that it has on our kids, there's no question this is urgent. And, and I will say that unlike all the other crises that I have in the book, it, it, this is the one that if you ask me, Ian, is this a Goldilocks crisis? Can we get this right? I know we can get the other ones right. I'm not sure on this one. Back on Forward, author of the brand new book, The Power of Crisis, How Three Threats and Our Response Will Change the World, founder of Eurasia Group and G0, you know him as Bill Maher's best friend, Ian Bremmer is back. Ian, welcome. Hey, you know him as a good buddy of Andy Yang, too, so, you know, I'm, not, I'm, I'm perfectly happy with that. Me too. <laughs> so grateful. So, uh, Ian, you're like uh, the oracle I turn to when I want to figure out what the heck is going on in the world. And you've been incredibly in demand lately because so much has been going on in the world. But you started writing this book, um, I'd imagine, sometime during the pandemic. And uh, events are now dramatically unfolding uh, uh, around the world. You had uh, a piece in your book about Russia's invasion of Ukraine. Like, what's your latest perspective on that? I th there was part of me when the conflict broke out. I thought to myself, "Wow, if Ukraine can hold on long enough, that Russia would would lose or, or give up." But here we are, like a, a number of weeks later. Um, what what's the latest on that front? Well, let me first say that you're right. I started writing the Power of Crisis uh, during the pandemic, and the idea was that we are in a target-rich environment right now in terms of global crisis. There are all sorts of people that are writing books that are telling you the sky is falling and the wheels are gonna fall off. And, and you and I have never been comfortable with that kind of analysis. We want solutions. And I thought that there was really not only space for, but really necessity for one book out there that said, how is it that we can and are taking advantage of some of these crises to deal with some of the challenges that have made us increasingly very anxious and despondent over the last decades. And, and indeed, we are. And starting with Russia, Ukraine, which wasn't uh, an active crisis when I started writing the book, but certainly was by the time I finished it. It's absolutely true. I mean, think about just in the last day, Finland is now going to join NATO. And in very short order, Sweden's going to make that announcement too. 
that wasn't remotely possible before the Russian invasion of Ukraine. Indeed, NATO was adrift. President Macron said it was brain dead. And now NATO not only has a mission, but it's more consolidated. The Germans are spending the money on defense that four successive US presidents have begged them to do and they refused. The Asian allies are all coming to the Munich summit in June. They're much more aligned as well. So it's not a pivot to Asia instead of Europe. It's the world's advanced democracies working together in response to this horrible decision by the Russian president to invade a country, a neighboring country of some 44 million people whose only sin is to want to uh, elect their own leadership. So yeah, we can get into how it's going, but I mean, the first thing we should say in how it's going is that actually the West looks more coherent. It has more leadership. Democracy seems to matter more. And indeed, three months in, there are 6 million Ukrainian refugees in Europe, but the Kiev government is still standing. And, and Zelensky is still president. And almost no one would have presumed that, certainly not Putin. And, and he, the reason he invaded is precisely because he believed that the West wouldn't be interested in and willing to respond. If he, I think if he had an inclination that this crisis would mobilize the West to actually respond effectively, he wouldn't have invaded in the first place. So good thing that Putin didn't read my draft. <laughs> well, it, I mean, it seems like he badly, badly miscalculated. I was in D.C. last month and I met with a couple of senators who just come back from uh, Ukraine and visiting the front. They were actually in Poland. I'm not sure if they went through to Ukraine, but they were meeting with uh, the Poles in particular to see how they could. Be yeah, helpful. that trip didn't go to Ukraine. That that trip went to they went to Poland. I think they went to uh, they were in Georgia. Uh, they were in France and they were one of them. They might have been in Italy, too. Yeah, yeah. So, so you know it well. Oh, yeah. Uh, and I also saw a story about this Polish high school that was uh, welcoming. In that case, it was maybe like dozens of Ukrainian students. It was in a way very wholesome. It humanized the whole thing because you realize that uh, these Ukrainians who fled, I mean, they're still teenagers and they still need to go to school. And so the Polish school is like, hey, I guess you're joining this school. And so that like they... If you can imagine your high school all of a sudden having 100 new, uh, new, new students and they were all sitting together learning, uh, and some of the Ukrainian teenagers were describing how it, it felt like the safest they'd been in you know, uh, days or weeks and like a, a dose of normalcy. sense I got from the senators also was like that they weren't sure how long this conflict was going to go on for. Is time uh, on the Ukrainian side or, or is it, uh, can, can one tell? I wouldn't say that time is on the Ukrainians' side. There are a couple of things that we know. We know that Russia has become a pariah for the G7. Um, you know that that the relationship between Russia and the U.S. and Europe has been broken, and that's permanent. Um, you, you, we're not going to unfreeze their assets. Uh, we're not going to start buying energy from them again. Once that gets cut off, that's it. And that's a G20 economy. That's unprecedented since the Soviet Union has collapsed, it's a really big deal. We also know that Europe is much more cohesive, that the EU matters a lot more. It mattered more coming out of the pandemic because they responded in a unified way, in a way that the United States frankly did not, uh, but also in response to what they see as an existential threat um, from Russia to all of Europe, not just to Ukraine. It's very real, it's very immediate for them. And that's one of the reasons Macron ended up winning much more easily in the second round once he started to start a campaign, uh, which was late. 
uh, because people recognize like we can't have a Euro skeptic president when we're facing this kind of a threat from Russia. It's just we need the EU. And that, that's a good thing. Even Poland, which was much more Euro skeptic. Now you mentioned Poland. They're accepting millions of Ukrainian refugees in their home. They're taking a lead in Europe in wanting more leadership, more leadership on security and defense, more leadership on economic integration. Those are all positive things for democracy around the world. You want that kind of an example. But, but let's be clear. I mean, we already know of thousands of Ukrainians that have had war crimes committed against them, tortures, rapes. Oh, terrible. We've seen what's happened in Bucha. We've seen what's happened on the ground in Maritopol. Uh, and there's going to be so much more of this. I mean, this is going to be the defining issue for generations of Ukrainians whose lives are being completely uprooted. And the fact is that Russia's spends 10 times as much on defense as Ukraine does. So um, it's true that um, the West has done a fantastic job and the Ukrainians have done a fantastic job, very courageous in fighting and ensuring that they can keep most of their country. But this is an act of war and there's nothing from Putin's speech on Victory Day, so-called Victory Day, May 9th, which in principle celebrates when the Soviets defeated the Nazis. But this year, of course, Putin made it everything but that. Um, there was nothing from that speech that would lead anyone to believe that he's going to back down, that he's going to withdraw his troops, that he's thinking about suing Terrible. for peace. In fact, they're presently moving towards formally annexing much of the territory that they've already managed to occupy. So I think as we look forward another three, six, 12 months, the best possible scenario for Ukraine is that they manage to fight the Russians to pretty much a draw and we get a frozen conflict. And then the West and maybe others, maybe even the Chinese who have privately said to many people that they'd be interested in potentially sending peacekeepers if we could get a wow. ceasefire. There is a possibility that you could get a frozen conflict that leaves the West much stronger and much more cohesive and, and kind of, and, and constrains this unex, unacceptable, unspeakable damage that's been done to the Ukrainian people. This podcast is sponsored by Helix Sleep. I've always been a mattress guy in that I knew if you're going to spend eight hours doing something, you should probably invest in doing it right. That's why I love Helix Sleep, which will send a mattress to your door that's made just for you. You take the Helix Sleep quiz and you get matched with a mattress based upon whether you want it to be soft, medium, firm, how you sleep, other variables, and then voila, it gets sent to your door and you can try it for up to 100 nights and send it back. They have a 10 plus year warranty because they believe in their product so much. I do too, my kids do too. They actually seek out this mattress even though it was designed not for them. <laughs> That's how good this product is. Helix has been awarded the number one mattress picked by GQ and Wired Magazine. It is even recommended by multiple chiropractors and doctors because they think it'll make you healthier. Don't take my word for it. Helix is offering 20% off all mattress orders and two free pillows for our listeners. Go to helixsleep.com yang and use code helixpartner20. This is their best offer yet and it won't last long. With Helix, better sleep starts now. Uh, you mentioned China 
and a number of people have said to me that one potential silver lining of this is that other countries are seeing what's happening with Russia becoming a pariah on the economic harm and, and the fact that there have been really negative ramifications for the regime as something that might discourage other countries from undertaking, uh, shall we say, something that, that involves some form of aggression against a neighbor? Uh, is, is that a potential silver lining out of this? Well, I mean, I, I know how personal the Taiwan issue is for you. That is um, what I was thinking, yeah. And, I mean, yeah. I, and, 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 I, and you and I have spoken about this in the past. I was not someone who believed that China was interested in suddenly invading Taiwan imminently. But certainly that is an enormous point of not just friction, but direct confrontation between the United States and China, between the West and China. We have said that we will defend the Taiwanese and, you know, Biden says it. And then, you know, the U.S. back, you know, walks it back a bit because, you know, in principle, we're not supposed to make that formal statement, but but instead help the Taiwanese defend themselves. But I, I think uh, the Chinese have seen very clearly two things. First, they've seen that in response to Ukraine, which is much less strategically important to the US than Taiwan is, um, in terms of the nature of its economy, uh, the advanced nature of its democracy, the critical importance of its semiconductor production. They, they say, look at what they did in Ukraine. Clearly, the level of commitment to Taiwan is likely to be greater than we, we saw before. And, and when Putin met with Xi Jinping in February 4th, 20 days before the invasion, back in the Beijing Olympics, and he basically said, you know, they announced this great friendship without limits. And he said, look, I'm going to attack Ukraine. Uh, and, and it wasn't talked about as a war. It was talked about as a special military operation because Putin was convinced that the Ukrainians weren't going to fight, that the Russians were just going to go in and take Kiev and Zelensky would be out of a few days, maybe two weeks max. Well, the Chinese are seeing that, the, that that is not what has happened and that the Russians are performing very badly on the ground. And, and this is a military that hasn't fought for decades. And that's part of why the Russians aren't capable, aren't ready. And, and the Chinese absolutely take a lesson for that because the Chinese military hasn't fought for decades. And so they're looking around and going, we, we may not have the capacity to respond to the Americans if, if Taiwan gets chippy or the East or the South China Sea gets chippy in a way that we think we do. We, we better go back and sharpen our pencils on this. So I, I think it buys time. I think it creates some realism on the part of Beijing. And I, and I think it creates greater understanding that American military power and allied military power, including the Quad, including AUKUS, and bolstered by the Indo-PAC economic framework, which is being developed, uh, none of those should be taken lightly by a government in China that frankly has more than its own share of problems this year. Yeah, when you talk about those problems, uh, you know, there, there have been images uh, and videos circulating about some of the, uh, the lockdown efforts uh, in Shanghai in particular, where I do have family. Um, and one of the things that I've, I've heard from a number of multiple people is that there's a lot of uh, anger and resentment uh, in China among the Chinese where uh, their leadership is concerned. Uh, you know, that there's also a rise in nationalism is what, what I hear. It's like there's a lot, you know, there, there was, uh, as of last year, like, a, frankly, like a greater degree of uh, animus towards like uh, the U.S. Um, but but it, it but any from what I'm hearing, and this is just from like, you know, half a dozen people. Anecdotal. Yeah. 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 I know personally that, that, that they're suggesting that there is a, a lot of anger and discontent uh, towards the regime. At so, present. I mean, in the same way that in Russia, 
the overwhelming response is anger at the West. And as the economy gets worse, they're gonna blame the West for those sanctions. They're not principally gonna blame their own Russian government. If the war is not going well, they're gonna say NATO's fighting us, this is the reason. In China, I agree, there is a lot of nationalism. There is a lot of feeling like this is about the West, that you know the, the Chinese locked down their population and prevented COVID from spreading and the West didn't care. The West particularly didn't care about their old people, don't respect their old people and allowed a million Americans to die because they weren't prepared to wear masks. They weren't prepared to be responsible. They just didn't care. And, and they see that as a failure of Western governance. So I would not underestimate the importance of nationalism, especially because that message is bolstered on social media by state linked actors and bolstered on state media every day, every morning, every night. But if you are in Shanghai, and of course, you know, the average Shanghainese is wealthier than the average citizen of, of Portugal. I mean, this is the wealthiest uh, city in China. They've done extravagantly well over the past 40 years. It's a world-class city. There's a level of arrogance uh, among Chinese that live there that, you know, everything works well here. We aren't like a second tier city. We're not like a rural area. And then suddenly a four day lockdown becomes a one month lockdown and they're having and, and it's managed badly where children that are positive tested positive are stripped away from their parents where pets are taken away and culled um where you know they're having a hard time getting food they can't leave their complex they're not getting good information i mean this is absolutely angering them primarily with local government but increasingly that level of frustration is broader um, and uh, and some of that is coming out even to the West, despite the Chinese government's best efforts to uh, to clamp it down. Um, and I, I look, I think that the Chinese government did do a fantastic job um, in ensuring once they admitted that COVID existed, which of course was several weeks after it actually existed, they were able to get uh, to track, to trace, to lock down, and get their economy running again by the second quarter of 2020. It, it's, they were the it's been interesting. There were different periods because I have family over there. Yeah. And so there were periods when we were in lockdown, when they were, you know, They're fine. open again. And, yeah. And then, yeah. And then things that were kind of flipped. I mean, they were going to nightclubs and they were proud of that. Yeah. They were very proud yeah. of that. But what really hurts me, and this is, I mean, looking at the, my book, looking at the power of crisis, I mean, this was a failure, is that this pandemic did not in any way bring together blue states and red states in the US or the US and China. And what we're seeing right now is that the Chinese in their arrogance of the government are so unwilling to support um, the US and Europe in sending them mRNA vaccines that work. We, the, we have the single greatest commodity in global surplus in the world right now, when you have inflation and challenges on supply chain everywhere, the one commodity that is in greatest global surplus are mRNA COVID vaccines. We have produced the living hell out of those things. We have them, we can give them to you. In Africa, the problem is not that we don't have vaccines, it's that they don't have the infrastructure to deliver them to the people. And so they'll expire before they can get into arms. China has that infrastructure. They can get those vaccines to the people, but they refuse to license Western vaccines because they can't admit that we got that done faster and better than they did. Who cares? Yeah, like who we're cares? one humanity. It's one virus that morphs over time. We have to work together. And the Chinese absolutely refuse. And you know what the horrible thing is? 
The reason they're refusing is because this crisis isn't big enough. They think they can deal with it. They see the light at the end of the tunnel. They're going to get their own mRNA vaccines by the end of the year. They can handle the lockdown. Xi Jinping gets his third term. They can pump enough money into the economy to make it work. They're too stable. They're too rich to actually, and the crisis was too small. COVID didn't hit them bad enough to, to require um, us to get beyond ourselves and work together as one, as one people. Yeah, that is the theme of your book, which I enjoyed a great deal. And it opens with a story that I did not know, um, which is of Reagan and Gorbachev getting together. And then Reagan asks him a question is, is like, hey, if aliens invaded and we were fighting them, would you help us? And then Gorbachev's like, sure, I would. <laughs> and then, then, uh, then Gorbachev shares the story later. And then decades people, later, some, decades, yeah, decades later. later. And then okay. some people take it somehow as like a you know, like a, a, a negative on Reagan. And I was like, you kidding? It's a great question. It's a great sentiment. Uh, and, uh, you know, I'm really glad that that was like a, a bonding experience for them. And I felt like a lot of your book was around like, okay, what are the aliens of today? <laughs> yes, that's exactly, you know, that, that turned out that Reagan was apocryphal. He was decades ahead of his time. Because if you talk today about COVID or you talk today about uh, climate change, or you talk about the potential of World War III with the Russians rattling their nuclear sabers against the West, these are the conversations that we have to be having. Okay, well, none of us want this to happen. And so, no, we don't trust each other. Democrats and Republicans, we don't like each other. We're really dysfunctional right now. Americans and Chinese, we don't trust each other. We're trying to contain each other. But, I mean, if you're facing this kind of an imminent existential crisis, wouldn't you just like Gorbachev, be willing to set aside your differences to fight the aliens? And the answer has to be yes. The answer has to be yes. And the fact that the answer hasn't even been yes in the United States between Democrats and Republicans, which is why you started your new party, right? I mean, you're one of the very few Americans that not only, a lot of people are angry about this, but how many people are willing to try to do something to respond to it? Well, why, why did we get Andrew Yang? You know, I mean, you could have done lots of other I things. I ask myself that same question every day. <laughs> well, I mean, we got you because the American political system was increasingly broken and dysfunctional for decades. And you said, OK, I'm going to do something about that. So that that's one of the scenarios you, you or the concerns you lay out in your book um, around the fact that one, you have this U.S.-China rivalry and two, you have this uh, polarization in the U.S. Uh, that, that may keep us from being able to, to come together and get things done. And you pose as potential unifying threats, uh, I think one that everyone can understand very readily, which is climate change. Uh, and one of the things I love about you and the book is that you are ultimately very constructive and positive saying, look, like, if you wanted to, you could have Green Marshall Plan that applies not just in one part of the world, but uh, actually creates the right incentives for both developed and developing countries to start meaningfully addressing climate change. Well, the, the Indian government did not, uh, India did not have a spring this year. Um, they have wet bulb temperatures um, that are unsustainable and unlivable for over a billion people um, of their 1.4 billion outside which means that the combination of heat and humidity is so great that the body cannot cool itself. 
So no. you can't, the, the, you've got laborers that are not allowed to work after 10 a.m. because literally they wouldn't be able to survive in those conditions. A billion of, of, of India's 1.4 billion. And, and that's because of climate change. It's unprecedented. It's the hottest March and April on record in India. It's only going to get worse. And the Indian government's response is we cannot and will not turn away from the coal that we need to ensure that we have energy, to ensure that we can cool our buildings, unless you guys, the rich countries that put all the carbon in the atmosphere and got us here, are willing to do something about it. Um, and, and who blames them? Who would possibly blame them? Now, the constructive piece of this is that after largely ignoring this issue for decades, we aren't ignoring it anymore. The constructive piece of this is that the world's banks that have a longer term perspective because they have portfolios that are you know, 10 year horizon understand that they can't get a return from thermal coal. And so they're overwhelmingly investing in renewables and in new generation nuclear, so much so that the cost at scale of these new technologies to deliver energy are starting to become much cheaper than fossil fuels. So as I look forward, Andrew, 2045 latest, I think the world, a majority of the world's energy will no longer come from oil and gas and coal. Five years ago, no one would have said that. And that is a direct response to crisis. And it's despite the fact that the Americans are divided and dysfunctional. It's despite the fact that the Chinese don't trust the Americans and vice versa, because everyone on the planet sees this as a problem. So young people came out and they said, we're not gonna buy from you as companies unless you take this seriously. And the banks did it and the Europeans did it and the Japanese did it. And when Trump pulled out of the Paris Climate Accord, the mayors and the governors said, no, we're sticking with it. And they did. So I, I actually, I think of, I call this a Goldilocks crisis. It's not so big that you're despondent because you know you have no shot and so you just curl up in a ball. And it's not so small that you couldn't be bothered. And climate change actually is a Goldilocks crisis. It's exactly the size that shows humanity that if we get our act together and focus, we can save the planet. And we are actually on track to do that. Now, if you listen to Antonio Gutierrez, the Secretary General of the UN, who is not just a good friend, but his quotes on the back of the book. So you would kind of wonder, well, wait a second, when he talks publicly, he's not as optimistic as Ian is. What's going on here? Well, no, of course not, because you can't have the world leaders act as if mission is accomplished, because then we'll stop. Like we, there's a huge amount to play for between 1.5 degrees of warming and 2.5 degrees of warming that will affect the lives of hundreds of millions of people and countless species that are facing extinction on the planet. So we need those leaders to keep leaning in and to, to panic people a little bit more. But, but the reality is, for you and me trying to understand what's happening on the planet is we are starting to get this right. Wow. And that's a, I think that's, a, that's an incredibly inspiring and hopeful message. It is interesting you characterize that because it's true. We all have roles to play. And if a government leader or someone like Antonio was like, hey, we're in great shape, then the urgency diminishes. Yeah, look how much we've done. <laughs> Take a year off, guys. <laughs> you can't do that. But that's one reason why I can't be Secretary General. It's really for the best. So the next solution you propose, which is something that I'm a thousand percent for, uh, we're talking about it back during my presidential campaign. I know. I know, is the World Data Organization. 
Uh, and so people know that uh, I'm passionate about the fact that our data is getting sold and resold, and it's not just here in the U.S. In the U.S., if you had to put a, a number on it, it's over $200 billion uh, a year in revenue from our, our data, uh, good times. If you look at the uh, market caps of Facebook slash Meta as an example, I mean, most all of that is on the backs of our data and, and their uh, market cap is, you know, over a trillion last I checked. So uh, th this is an outgrowth of advancing technology and developing AI uh, that you see as potentially another uh, crisis that could bring governments together. Yeah, look, our institutions increasingly don't work. And the reason for that is not because our leaders are bad. The reason for that is because they're old. The institutions are old and they don't, they aren't reformed um, yet. Uh, and, and they're meant to be sticky when you create them because you don't want people to come in and break them and make them work for them as opposed to you because you created it and so it should work for you. But over time, you know, the reality is the global economy changes, the balance of power changes, but if the institutions don't change, that means the institutions will start to fail. So, I mean, an easy example on this is NAFTA. When we started NAFTA, it reflected the economy of the US, Canada, Mexico is a great trade agreement. And by the time Trump became president, it reflected less than 50% of our trade because data and services not covered by NAFTA, but increasingly that's how we trade. So the fact that Trump blew it up and created a new NAFTA was one of the things that he did that I most supported. And the reason for that was because we now have an agreement that reflects a 21st century economic trade between our countries. And it'll last well for another 20 years or 30 years. That's a good thing. And in fact, you even, there's a sunset clause. So in 10 years, you have to renegotiate it. Awesome. So why is that relevant? Well, because everything you just asked me about in terms of global data and in terms of surveillance capitalism, where companies' business models are driven by making human beings into products, by, by uh, profiting off of the data that they get from us, and we in turn get free services that are no more free than the dinner. Oh yeah, they, well, the, the cost is only our mental health, our democracy, yeah. our integrity as a society, just, just little things like that. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> but it's I mean, free. you know, like but when JP Morgan, you know, takes a billionaire for a dinner, that's not a free dinner, <laughs> right? So it's the, same, it's the same thing at massive and unprecedented scale and, and with enormous impact on us as human beings. So what do we need? And you and I talked about this when you were running as president and you, and you even mentioned it on the presidential debate stage when you were asked about it, which is we need a world data organization. Why? Because we don't have one. I mean, it's, it's yeah. the most obvious thing that data drives the 21st century economy and there is literally no architecture for it. So how could you not have such an agreement? Now, a world data organization would have uh, not just governments, but would have corporations in the space play a much greater role because unlike in the 20th century, these tech companies function as sovereigns in the digital space. So it's gonna to need to be more of a multi-stakeholder approach. A 21st century solutions increasingly look like that. Climate change solutions increasingly need corporations and banks in addition to governments, right? Because in, in reality is that's how decisions are made. That's how power is diffused these days. But there is no question, given how quickly AI is advancing, given how quickly disruptive technologies are advancing, given how much damage it's doing to our civil society, what the, the, the behavioral impact that it has on our kids, there's no question this is urgent. And, and I will say that unlike all the other crises that I have in the book, it, it, this is the one that if you ask me, Ian, is this a Goldilocks crisis? Can we get this right? 
I know we can get the other ones right. I'm not sure on this one. I think it might be, it might not be. It might be impossible to contain, impossible to regulate. And if that's the case, then as a species, we're not gonna be around for much longer. But if you're not sure, how can you not do everything you can to at least try to see if it's a Goldilocks crisis? And that, that's kind of where we are. Yeah, I mean, you use some very strong language in the book about how like that this may be the, the greatest threat. And uh, I thought like, wow, I mean, that, that's uh, very, very firm. I tend to agree with it. Let me, let me tell you why it's, I think it's the greatest threat. So it's very specific because when we had nuclear weapons, you know, people thought that that was the greatest threat. But the interesting thing about nuclear weapons as a technology, it's very complex. The materials are very dangerous and they're rare. So for, for 70 years now, we have done a really good job in being able to contain nuclear proliferation. There are very few organizations in the world that have nukes or are actively trying to get them that we don't know about. But when we talk about these disruptive technologies that are world threatening, like cyber security, cyber offensive cyber weapons, or like lethal autonomous drones, right? I mean, these are weapons that are going to proliferate maximally. Rogue states, criminal organizations will have access to these weapons within a decade. And so there is a much greater level of urgency to try to regulate their use, to nudge those that have influence over them, because we know we're not going to be able to simply stop them. And the advances in artificial intelligence, when we talk about the algorithms that are literally injected into our, our mental, our neural uh, bloodstreams without testing them first, with no idea how they're going to impact social interactions. The only reason we do it is because we know that that's what happens to make money for the companies. Like that's not sustainable. It's clear that's not sustainable. Oh yeah, yeah. you had a, a, a passage in the book that really struck me where you said, look, if everyone knows who the strongest is, then the incentives for conflict goes down because you're like, you, know, you know that, let's say in this case, the US is the most powerful. But if you have a, a world where you can have uh, destructive AI and cyber warfare tools in the hands of rogue actors and the rest of it, then it just becomes a lot muddier and uh, the landscape becomes less rational and clearer. And so you wind up uh, inviting new forms and sources of conflict. Oh yeah, I remember when ISIS, after the second uh, Iraq war and ISIS rises up and they take Mosul, which is the second largest city in Iraq, and they grab $800 million of bank reserves uh, my immediate worry is, oh my God, I hope they don't know anyone that knows how to code. Because with that kind of cash, if they really wanted to disrupt or destroy the West, they would have a shot. And it turned out they just didn't have that background. They just, I mean, they, 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 you know, they, they did some rogue websites that allowed them to make some money on fake advertising. They did one that you know, mimicked a Mercedes-Benz site, but they, they really didn't have that capacity. I, that's not gonna be true. In, in wars and, and massive displacements um, and, and asymmetric conflicts in the next decade, two decades. It just won't be true. Reading it, I was like, yeah, this is, this is happening and it's gonna be very, very difficult because you can imagine a, a world where it's just so much harder to uh, somehow safeguard or secure 
uh, a site or a system or infrastructure or network that, than it is to uh, try and attack it in my mind. It's like, and, and it's one of the struggles we have these institutions now is that you have a political figure who has to come and say like, hey, we're ready for X. And then you're like, in, in reality, it's like, come on, like we, we know that <laughs> we know that if someone really was determined, like, you know, there, there are all sorts of vulnerabilities. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's funny when I was writing that chapter, I actually, I, I thought to myself that you were one of the people that not only was most aligned with the message, but also really would get it immediately. And there, I, there are, you know, now I've, it's coming out on Tuesday and there are a lot of people in government that have already read the, the draft and, nice work. and, and Good stuff. usually when they talk to me, they're like, okay, well, walk, walk me through this chapter because I don't really get some of what you're talking about on AI. Why, why is that a bigger threat than climate change? And like, it, it's, that's part of the problem is that the government leaders just don't understand how fast this has become existential for our planet. I feel like the EU is the furthest along in terms of, of its data protection, its uh, regulatory approach. Many people think that they're quite adversarial with big tech. They're looking at having a tax regime that uh, like it includes data. Um, I, I happen to think that they, you know, I mean, there are a couple of things I tweak, but they have like, like the best approach I've seen um, out of uh, a government. Um, my hope is that the U.S. follows the EU's lead uh, and adopts what California did around its on GDPR. Yeah. Yeah. And to me, like the argument was like, I helped out with that California referendum uh, that they got higher data protections uh, for Californians. And then the argument is you go to other states and be like, why the heck do Californians have these rights of protections that you don't? Uh, you know, the hope is that maybe you can get state governments to get their acts together faster than Congress. Ideally, eventually Congress would follow suit. And then if you had the U.S. and the EU uh, approaching this in a similar way, then maybe you could have the seeds of the World Data Organization because those would be the two biggest actors. So that's what I see as the path. Um, I, I don't know, uh, you know, when, when you say like you're not sure that this one's the Goldilocks scenario, like that that would be my shot at it is start at the state level and then try and uh, get get it across Congress. So I, I would I'd tweak it a little. Um, I would say it's to start, it's the EU, it's Canada and it's Japan because those are the countries that are most aligned um, on the regulatory side, but also don't have the big companies internally. So it's a lot easier for them as a consequence. Huh, yeah, it makes sense. Right? Why is the EU so effective? Because they don't have you know, the lobbying and the capturing from local European companies that are so powerful. And, and I think, but together with that process, you need to find some of the private sector actors that are most aligned. And that just in the same way that Larry Fink from BlackRock it's not like he cared about the environment more than other financial actors, but he was the one that first understood that the world was going to move in that direction. And he thought, if I make that big bet early, I will have a huge advantage over my competition. So if you can convince a couple of the tech players that, no, the world is going to move in this direction, you're going to need to treat data very differently. And if you're first, you'll actually have the ability to play a much bigger role Right. And, and, and you'll be able to build the products that will be much more effective in this new global order. And so take a bet on it. And yeah, you're going to have to do the equivalent of giving up the thermal coal early, but it makes sense for you. I think you want to find and get a few of those companies involved early. And those companies exist. Those companies exist. And I think if you do that, 
uh, then you have a really good shot of getting the Americans on board. Now, here's one problem is what do you do with the Chinese? Because there is a credible argument here that the reason why you can't regulate the American companies too hard is because the Chinese are at parity with the United States in a lot of these disruptive technologies. And if you do anything that weakens the American companies, the Chinese will simply end up with the dominant model. And so if you can't find a way to engage the Chinese on disruptive technologies, um, then this whole thing uh, may be a fool's errand. And so there, I think you have to, as you're building the World Data Organization, you have to find at least individual chapters of WDO accession that the Chinese are willing to engage in, and you're willing to give them a shot of engaging in, because we all understand that otherwise we're heading to war. We're heading to conflict. Like quantum computing can't be just brought in-house right now. Right now, everyone that's involved in quantum computing is doing it in-house. There's no sharing in the public sector the way, they are, the way there is in other parts of AI. And so when you talk to the people that are leaders in quantum, they don't know where their competitors are. And, and the danger is that you know, in the next 10 years, if someone builds an advanced quantum computer, um, that that could make all cryptography obsolete. obsolete. Yeah. And if the Chinese suddenly unveil that, or the Americans do, then suddenly the other country, I mean, is hugely on the back foot and would have, would have reasons to engage in preemptive strikes. Because you just don't catch up at that point. You get to be the superpower, the AI superpower, like forever. Um, and create all the rules. And, and we should want to avoid that kind of sudden insecurity on the part of powerful countries. So I, I, this, is, this is a really challenging one, but, but I, I think that the way you're thinking about it is exactly right. Um, and I'd like to believe that, uh, that more people focusing on this issue will get us to better solutions, which is why I wrote about it. Yeah, I, I know you and I, uh, it seems like we've both been influenced by and in, in touch with Kai-Fu Lee, who writes about uh, uh, oh, yeah. th this competition. Uh, so China has a couple of structural advantages in that they have more access to more data and the government has a tighter relationship with uh, uh, their big tech concerns. Uh, I'm told the Chinese government actually invests directly in compute infrastructure where they're just islands of servers. It sounds very dystopian, like very matrixy. Uh, and yeah, but when, but when, but it but it's working for them. Oh yeah, I mean it's smart. Yeah. It's yeah. like you know, like like they see AI as a crucial arena of competition, uh, both militarily and economically. Um, and like you said, in the U.S., uh, our efforts are almost ex entirely company led. And you want to avoid this sense of like an AI arms race, but that that is what it feels like. Yeah, the the problem is directionally right now we're heading more into a cold war with the Chinese on AI. And in part, that's because of the way we define national security a little more broadly than perhaps we should on some of these issues. So, you know, the fact that we thought that, well, even TikTok potentially was something we need to get out of the United States because it means the Chinese have access to our data. I mean, that it's just different than Huawei and we should treat it as such, but, and be clear with the Chinese. But secondly, because the Chinese themselves for different reasons, you know, kept out the Facebooks and the Googles from their country. Um, and so some very powerful players in the United States don't see any utility in interdependence with China because they don't have it. And so they're willing to drive in a much more strategically competitive direction than the American Chamber of Commerce would on issues of manufacturing and services and the like. So those two things make it harder to have a global response. And if your response is we're going to regulate AI really well, 
in half of the world's economy, that's not going to fix your problem. Yeah, it's true. Because every one of the crises that I'm talking about in this book don't work unless you have global agreements. I mean, you can't, like the pandemic, you, if you manage the pandemic really well in China for the first year, but the United States and Europe says, well, <laughs> who cares? Uh, then it's coming back with much more transmissible variants. And frankly, like if I were the Chinese government looking at that, that would aggravate me. <laughs> well, you know, I, I was just imagining a scenario where you actually did get the U.S. and, and China to, to the table and they agreed on certain guidelines for AI. The fact is, I think both sides wouldn't believe the other side's actually going to follow through. And That's they, right. They, they, they were just, so it, it, that, that wouldn't be a very, very difficult one. And when you describe a scenario where someone announces, hey, guys, guess what? We cracked it. Like quantum computing, we could like, you know, collapse your financial system tomorrow if we felt like it. And then the, the other side looks at it and is like, oh, I guess we should... We should do something to that capability. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that, that, that's, that's the, the knee-jerk response. Yeah. So you want to worry early before this becomes something that feels imminent and therefore feels powerful and enticing to these governments. And this is the right time to be addressing that issue. And I am convinced that there are areas of AI and there are areas of disruptive technologies where you can get cooperation even between the United States and China, but certainly between the Americans, Europeans, Japanese, and that matters a lot. So glad that you're raising uh, both the alarm and hope uh, on what I agree with you are the most important issues uh, of our time. I'm not sure if we would have had pandemic on the list uh, pre-COVID, though uh, you did very correctly know it's like, look, people have been talking about a pandemic for years and years, uh, but before this one hit, now we're going to have others. Climate change, I think everyone uh, gets. Disruptive technology, not everyone gets, but more and more people uh, are, are waking up to it. Really grateful that you're actually you know, championing uh, international collaboration, which were things that I, when I was running for president, I said, look, the biggest problems facing us, we can't tackle alone. Yeah, we can't, it's true. And you know, again, I just, I kind of feel like if I, if I look over the next few months and people talking about this book, and I'm looking at who else is out there that is actually looking at these crises through a lens of they give us the opportunity to actually change some of the things that are really worrying us. That's not what I'm seeing. I'm seeing a whole bunch of dystopian, the sky is falling, everything's going to hell. And by the way, not my problem, it's because of them. It's because of those bad people. It's not the Democrats, the Republicans' fault. It's not the Republicans, the Democrats' fault. It's not the Americans, the Chinese' fault. It's not the Chinese, the Americans' fault. Like that, th there is enough of that. If, if that is the message you want, you can go anywhere for that. Anywhere to get that. But, it's but a, that if you want everywhere. like a what we're going to do about it, I think that, you know, you come here, you talk to me, you talk to Andrew, I, I think that you'll at least be a little bit less insane. Um, and that's and that's a helpful thing. Oh, yeah. I, I actually have uh, some real hope and optimism about a, a reorientation, a realignment of American politics faster than most people think uh, possible. There is a lot of negativity right now. I agree. Um, but I'm seeing seedlings uh, of optimism and hope and action orientation. Things can change faster than most people think possible. Unfortunately, when you say that, like that, that's both bad as well as good. <laughs> you know? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> like some, you know, some some of the changes are going to be like, whoa, that got away from us pretty quick. But I also think some uh, rapid positive change is also. Uh, possible in, in a way that might not have been true not that long ago. But your approach also, which I really appreciate, is, is hopefulness and optimism coupled with a willingness to fail fast. Like you are not someone that continues to try to beat down a wall if it's not working. You're like, okay, that doesn't work. I'm going to try this instead. 
And that we need to do that. This is going to be responding to crises effectively is also a period of profound experimentation and rigorous analytic intent that when something isn't working, you say, okay, that's fine. We still have this problem. Let's move to plan B. Yeah, amen. I mean, one of the things I'm trying to alert people to is that at this point, stances on uh, different topics and issues uh, at, at this point are serving as tribal markers more than anything else, uh, because the fact is like our political system is not going to deliver on, you know, 80, 90 percent of the things that, that, that any of us would want. And so we have to try and fix that. And then we can go back to, you know, hashing out whatever disagreements <laughs> we might have. Uh, and so it, it's interesting. I mean, it, it's like it, it's, your, it's the case I'm making because I, you know, I'm, I'm sure it's true. Um, it's not the case that Americans are accustomed to hearing uh, because uh, where we're so accustomed to being tribalized and pitted against each other and said like, hey, they're the bad guys. Uh, you know, it's like at, at this point, the system's the bad guy. And if we can get past that, realign the, the system so it responds to, you know, most of us or more of us at least, um, then we'll have a shot at it. And then we'll get together with some of these other governments and say, hey, look, guys, the U.S. is functioning again. <laughs> like, 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 I mean, look. to go back to where we started, I, I will say that um, Democrats and Republicans right now do agree for how, however fleetingly that Putin is a worse guy uh, than their enemies across the aisle. Yeah. And, and you have highlighted some of the the new cohesion and energy around NATO and, and democracy uh, as a response to that. Uh, so hopefully the world will rise to the challenge, will rise to the occasion. And if it does, I think you'll be a big reason why uh, you laid out some incredibly ambitious, optimistic, uh, yet practical suggestions for global responses to our biggest problems. And, uh, you know, we all owe you a debt of gratitude, Ian. And I owe you a debt for always giving me a better sense as to both what's happening in the world and what we can do better. So this book, The Power of Crisis, How Three Threats and Our Response Will Change the World, uh, is on sale right now. I mean, this podcast is probably going to come out on Monday. And so if you order it, the book will show up on your doorstep tomorrow. That's right. Excellent. Thanks, man. I'll see you real soon. I'm looking forward to it.